Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to John, the founder at Blackpoint, and we discuss their nation state grade cybersecurity ecosystem, the art of the go to market plan, and a very special checklist for CTOs thinking about cybersecurity. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, hey, how's it going? Fantastic. Look at that background. I Looks know. Secure. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really a green screen. <laughs> it's our sock, though. Uh, so a picture of it, at least. Oh, that's neat. So that's a picture of the inside of your sock? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like people are like, <laughs> can you tell me what sock is? Because it's not the one you wear on your feet. No, Security <laughs> Operations Center. It's our Threat Ops Center. It's where uh, where our analysts sit when we're we're kind of doing our 24 seven, you know, detection response type stuff. Yeah. I was geeking out so hard when I was reading your bio and your profile and what your company does. It, it's literally like the, the secret agent slash secure. It's, it's a dream of what you would want to do as, as someone in technology. It just sounds so cool. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, a, you know, kind of our, our background, where we came from and kind of what we do now. So, yeah, you know, my my primary background, uh, I, I was a network engineer, right, originally. And then I ended up going to the National Security Agency and spending 12 years and really kind of flipped over, you know, more to the CNO side and did that for a long time, kind of, I guess, more as the bad guy for the right team. And, uh, you know, about 2014, uh, I had a bit of an injury that prevented me from working. And so, you know, I ended up kind of spinning out what is Blackpoint Cyber today. And, you know, we flipped all doing only defense and we were really a software company, but people consume our food as a, a managed service. So, you know, it sounds sexy on the outside, but it's kind of like what pilots describe, you know, flying a plane is kind of boring until it's not sort of thing. So, you know, what we really do is we use all of our software and instrument, uh, folks' networks and computers, and we monitor them. And if we see any form of breach or tradecraft or lateral movement, we take action to stop it out of our sock. So that's called managed detection response. Uh, so yeah. Why are you like uniquely qualified to be doing this? I want you to say stuff about like the NSA and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I won't say too much there. But what I would say is, you know, there's a difference between, you know, kind of doing you know, like a test penetration operation. There's a lot of similarities. You know, I think ultimately when, you, when you've had to bring all sorts of technologies and humans and things together to go conduct an operation somewhere, there's, there's a lot of details. And like I tell everyone in, in, in security, details matter. They really, really matter because that's the land the bad guys are living in, taking advantage of. So I think, you know, for us having sat on both sides of the fence, I think it really gives us a much greater appreciation for additional observables in a breach, right? You know, I think one of my takes is I think a lot of people get overly focused on catching malware, like the malicious tool set. The thing is, though, there's so much when you land in a network for the first time as the bad guy, you don't know where you are. You don't know what permissions you're running with. So it's little things like, how do I find other subnets? How do I find maybe this person I'm going after? we definitely prey on them during that phase of, of the bad guys operation. So we're looking for guys trying to figure out where they are laterally spread, which is really the common in almost every breach you'll see. So it's, it's probably all of that coming together, which can help lead you to malware maybe that hasn't been detected before or you know, servers on the internet that you know, command control infrastructure, the bad guys use most of it's brand new and the hacks we see. So I think that it's kind of bringing the whole operation together. When you first learned to to hack, I guess, was it like a class you took or was it part of your job? How did you get into it, the actual hacking? That's a good question. There's probably a ton of hackers way better than I ever was. You know, I, you know the reality is I, I, I was an athlete at University of Maryland and, you know, my brother, I'm the youngest of four. Yeah, he was in Silicon Valley. He's a VP over at CrowdStrike for a bit and um, you know, back in the late nineties, he handed me a few Cisco books and said, Hey, knucklehead, <laughs> you know, start reading this stuff. It'll be good for you. Uh, so I did. So it was really all self-taught. Uh, so I started with networking, 
you know, gotten to kind of Windows domain, some more IT stuff. And I think IT is some of the best fundamentals you can have uh, because it allows you to understand networking and subnetting and how to move around. And then I, I got an interest in security. And then when I went to NSA, the rest was history and it was very little formal training, almost all on the job and just learning. You know, that's the thing. There's so much in YouTube today that you can you can learn to do a ton just by curiosity. Yeah, when I was, they didn't, we didn't have YouTube when I was a kid. Now I sound like an old man. <laughs> I know, same. <laughs> I, I was at like Books A Million or Barnes and Noble and I was choosing between, I think it was like an MCSA book set collection mm -hmm. or this book, I think it was called like Hack This Site or something. It was, it was some hacking related book where they gave you like introductions and they had a test site and you could go run these things. And, and I had already been programming. So I was already uh, pretty familiar with tools and things and how to use the computer. So I, I, I went with the more exciting one and then I didn't get into security. Basically I just played around with it for a little bit, trying to get into my other computers and things like that and having fun with my, uh, my siblings. <laughs> um, right. And then uh, I just ended up making money doing legitimate stuff. And I said, well, you can make a ton of money doing legitimate stuff. No, no reason for me to be messing around over here. Right. Uh, little did I know it would become this giant industry. <laughs> oh, I know who, who would have known. I mean, it's, I guess it's a good thing, bad. It's good for us that there's, you know, companies protect and bad guys out there. But the other side is, you know, I wish companies weren't dealing with this stuff. It's, it's terrible. That's a lot of them out of business. But yeah, it sure exploded. <laughs> it's in line with your passion, though, what you're doing. So that's yeah. how you have like an awesome life. What, how did you pick the name Black Point? Boy, that was uh, you're one of the only people I've ever asked me that, actually. So it was 2007. I had left NSA. They had asked me to come back. And I said no a couple of times. And I don't know what I was thinking. I decided to ask him. You know, would you hire me if I started my own business? And so there's really been two black points, like 1.0, which is really all government services focused. And then that ended in 2014 and I sold that. And then the commercial one. And, you know, I was really just talking to my brother on the phone and we're trying to think like black ops and some nod to what I, you know, kind of the, the, the past or the history. And, uh, and then I was kind of really into, uh, hunting at the time with my dog, like bird hunting. And so I was, of course, like, oh, on point, you know, dogs on point or whatever. But there's about a thousand of those. <laughs> so I just smashed the two together. So it really means nothing. <laughs> but that's how we got Black Point. That's a good story. I like it. Yeah. yeah. What type of dog do you hunt with? <sighs> He's a Vishla. Uh, I have so not heard of that. They kind of look like a Weimaraner or German short-haired pointer, you know, really skinny, you know, kind of dog that can run all day. Yeah. I've been looking at the border collies recently. So, oh yeah. Those are like the smartest ones, aren't they? They're that's what they say. I just Googled yeah. smart. I was like, I want a smart dog. <laughs> yeah. I've had a those couple dogs cool in dogs. my life and not so much. And so so what's a smart one? And then I found border collies. But I was, I want to know like about your specific security company. What's what's the big thing that you see constantly over and over and over? Like why your customers are coming to you? Uh, the big thing I see over and over, I'll say on the tech side, is someone gets in one way or another. The most popular ways are that we've seen lately are firewall vulnerabilities, unpatched firewalls. Those are hitting companies, smashing companies left and right right now because there's really very little malware involved. So they kind of come in, they VPN in, they hit you, phishing. You know, you see something like Solar Winds, which is a little more rare, a nation state supply chain attack. They get in somehow. And like the common thing is rapid spreading, stealing privileged accounts and using all the, you know, what people call live off the land techniques, the same techniques IT professionals use to push software, modern machines. They do all that to, to get it. And so really what's happened is it's 2021. The, the volume of attacks have gone up so much and Companies are so reliant on their IT infrastructures that they just cannot afford to run a 24-7 operation. And you can't leave it up to automated software anymore. And the, actually, the, a lot of the anti-malware products have gotten much, much better. But that whole gray area where, you, where the bad guys are you know, RDPing around or VPNing and, and spreading, like it just doesn't trip those tools. And so what you really need is kind of a set of technology and people. And we're able to do it at a price point 
that gives a small company or medium enterprise a real 24-7 operation, but with a hammer where we can respond to stop it really quickly. And I think that's what's brought most people, you know, kind of to the table for us. So it's just kind of cost benefit sort of thing, you know? Yeah, it's easier to just hire Blackpoint rather than building it out all internally. That's how yeah. all of it, like Slack, like we don't build our own Slacks. We don't build our own Zooms. They build it for us and we just pay them. Pretty much, pretty much. So you can focus on your main job, which is run whatever type of business you run. So you don't have to become professionals in the game we're in. Tell me about the solar winds attack. That was a recent one. It's pretty popular in the media. Yeah, that was very sophisticated, you know, kind of in an odd way, have to respect the skills that were behind that. You know, so that was really a, a, a supply chain attack, you know, supposedly from a nation state, which I would believe that really essentially, let me back up a little bit. So one of our verticals is managed IT service providers, MSPs. So we protect them and then they resell our product to their end customer. They use tools called remote monitoring and management. So tools to, you know, push updates, to do help desk, you know, screen share type stuff and patch computers. Well, if you think about those tools, they're like a legitimate glorified backdoor. So hackers love that stuff. Well, SolarWinds, they make that product, Golden Central, and that was not, to my knowledge, breached. But they make another product that does application and network monitoring, performance monitoring. And so what this, this threat actor group did is essentially broke into that company, found their kind of their software engineering service servers, and were able to get into the build process and essentially hook the updater, kind of like they did in the NotPetya, you know, worm attack that several years ago with that ME dot company. And, and they were able to, you know, when that agent phoned home to get a software update, they got a super update. And that update gave them remote access into the networks. I don't know, you know, that platform connects, collects a lot of router configs. And I don't know if they were able to get that, which would make it even easier. But essentially, it gave them, they, they were able to, boom, get right on the endpoint there. And then from there, they did the normal stuff, the lateral spreading stuff that we catch. And so uh, that was a really sophisticated operation. And, and there was more to the story where they were going after kind of Microsoft 365 environments as well. There's something that, you know, they really kind of opened my eyes to this vector, uh, which is taking advantage of what's called enterprise applications in 365 which is, I, I tell you, this has got to be going on like crazy right now. Essentially, you know, kind of the maybe layman's terms version of this is, you know how you can log in maybe with your Amazon account to pay for something on another site or Facebook? Well, let's say you're using like a CRM, like HubSpot, and you want to integrate that with uh, your 365. You can log into the HubSpot application with your 365 creds, and it gives your permissions to that end application, even if you have two-factor on. And so now that's going to open the door for all these rogue third-party applications that you're going to be able to start social engineering people to get in. So they played in, in that game a bit too. And I think that's going to become a big hot problem in 2021. Uh, there's already been some companies that have come out and said they were popped that way. Yeah, my bank doesn't allow that. So it if you do 2FA, it just voids all of your current like hooks or like API keys sharing. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. At least so, you know, my bank does. And because I, I found that out by accident because I had two factor on and I needed to go do an integration, you know, yep. and I, and I went to go do it and entered my stuff. And then it popped me back a notice that said, um, we, you, you have to turn off two step authentication in order to use this service. Uh, and then I further found out that all the previous integrations were expired automatically. Oh, wow. I, we have, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of things you can do that need your bank uh, third-party connected, right? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, from like QuickBooks to any sort of third-party cost monitoring software, all those types of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a buddy of mine uh, up the street here in Colorado, he unfortunately, you know, this is a year and change ago, he had an issue where, you know, it's typical stuff. He didn't have multi-factor authentication on. So, it was kind of a neat story, just so folks understand how this kind of financial wire fraud stuff goes. 
they they found his creds online, dark web, whatever, from some other breach. He's the same ones, you know, across multiple accounts. They log into his business uh, account because uh, they had his creds and he was using the same ones. They then realized, read his email and found, oh, he uses T-Mobile. We'll go try that. And so they log into T-Mobile, same creds. And then what they, they really rapidly did there is they went and made a rule on his email to forward you know, anything coming into his inbox to another folder so he didn't see it. Then they forwarded his phone to their burner phone. Then they called this bank up and then they said, hey, I can't log in. They said, no problem. We're going to send you a, a two-factor, you know, cred to your phone via SMS. This is why you don't use SMS or phone calls for this. They got the cred and then they were able to log in. Then they said, okay, I want to do a wire transfer. Um and sent another two-factor code, which came to the burner phone. And they then made a wire transfer to a bank in New York that had a Bitcoin company as a direct customer. And that way, it didn't go through international borders. He lost 200 Gs. It was gone. Never got it back. But that's literally just because you don't have app-based multi-factor authentication. That's how fast it went. And that all happened in about a four-and-a-half, five-hour period. He was on a plane online, just wasn't getting emails, just thought, hmm, we're dead, didn't get emails. But that's what really happened. How do you protect yourself against that? Is there insurance you buy? Like, what do you do? There has to be something in the marketplace. You know, I don't, you know, we, we sell cyber insurance. We have a cyber insurance agency at Blackpoint called Blackpoint Risk. But I don't know about that type of, um, that type of thing. What would have prevented that is having two-factor on with Microsoft Authenticator and then two-factor on his uh, his phone account. You know, that would have been so that simple. would have prevented free. it? Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's unfortunate. <laughs> but, uh, oh, because of the original login is what happened. They were only yeah, he, he scamming originally, the codes. Yeah, yeah okay, and that's it. the yeah. thing. That's why you don't want to use SMS or phone call for your second factor because people do the game where they call your phone company and say, hey, I got a new phone or a new SIM card. I want to swap it. Boom, you're done there. Or they log just right into your your account with AT&T or T-Mobile and set up a phone forwarding rule, which you can do from those, just to forward all your calls to another number. You know? So, what so, do you, so your, your base, what you do, what you tell people, like let's say you're at the grocery store and someone's like, oh, hey, security expert, what's the two things I should do? It's What is it? It's multi-factor authentication okay. on any application that's that's uh, uh, web-enabled. I mean, it's not negotiable anymore, I don't think. It's like, what's more annoying, 2FA or losing $200,000? <laughs> yeah, I've called, I think 200 Gs is worse. <laughs> I, I, so, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, so you get, you got a lot of, you know, the scams where people get in, they break in this normal hacking to encrypt you or whatever. And then you have the scans, which are, which are really just a, a clever con man game where you're just trying to trick people into wiring you money or you're breaking into wire their own money out. What's the most common for businesses? So they get through the firewall, they get in there, they bounce around, they live off the land, they gain yeah. super admin access. What's, what's the most common end result? What are they trying to do? How do they profit? Right. Ransomware. So what they're really going to do, yeah. So, you know, that really started with most of the groups would just encrypt all the computers, call you up and say, hey, pay up or you're never getting your your data back. And so folks started saying, all right, well, I'm really going to double down on backups. So the bad guys then evolved and really started targeting the backup infrastructure (laughs) as well, (laughs) of course. Um, And really what shifted in 2020 is the, the more sophisticated group said, I, we need more leverage on these folks to pay. So we're going to steal the data first. So we're going to steal a whole bunch of your sensitive data. So if you're a you know, manufacturer, maybe they're stealing designs, whatever, uh, and then they encrypt you. And then they'll reach out to you and send you screenshots of the data, give you a deadline and say, if you don't pay up, we're going to release all your private customer data or HIPAA or whatever on the internet, and you're not going to get your keys back. And so they really jacked it up. So that's why the insurers are really took it on the chin, I think, in 2020 with cyber insurance policies. Because And then what they'll say is, show me your policy. Show me how much coverage you have. And then they'll, they'll ask for that. There's a new one I got recently, like about a week ago. And so I'm going to try to share it in like the most respectful way possible. So I got this email. Sure. <laughs> 
and it was from me because they spoofed my email. I'm like, not hard at all. And it said, hey, I have have full access to your email. I tapped into your webcam and recorded you watching a certain type of adult type of video doing a certain thing. And I'm going to, and I also have your contact address book and I'm going to send the video Mm -hmm. uh, to all of your contacts unless if you you know, do uh, send Bitcoin to this address and this address or whatever it was. And it was, it was like, a, like a, it was between one and $3,000. And I was like, well, given that I don't do that, like, right. <laughs> I know you don't like, and this is clearly, but it was such an interesting one because for, for decades, I've gotten all the other scam emails that are just so obvious, but this one was like a whole nother level. And yeah. I can't imagine. I took a screenshot of it and sent it to my producer and my associate producer and said, Hey, are you guys getting spammed to see if it was domain wide? Like, is this happening on our whole domain? Cause I need to know if my employees are all getting sure. their own version of this. Um, but it was interesting because, because of the way they wrote the message, it was very like, it was very convincing and it was very direct and it was, it would be something you wouldn't want to share with anybody. Yeah. Even if you were innocent, you would not want to share this with somebody, but I'm, never shy of like difficult conversations and I need to protect my team and make sure this isn't spreading. So I did, but I was, I was curious, like so many people must be seeing this and doing it out of fear. Oh, one of my family members got that over a year ago and they freaked out. Oh my gosh. I don't know what it could be. I haven't done this, but what do they have? I'm like, no, they're just lying. They're just tricking you. (laughs) But yeah, it was a really well-written email. The one I saw, that was, you know, it's spooky. I mean, that's the best thing. If you want to like, scam someone or trick someone, you need to generate an emotional response out of them. Mm. That's when people start making bad decisions, right? And uh, yeah, so con artists are good at that. I guess you're right. That Those are all the popular ones. I'm stuck in another country. I can't get a hold mm-hmm. of somebody. Send me some money. It's all. It's always a really emotional reason. Yeah, no, I, it's the best way to do it. It's the best way, I think, to you know, unfortunately manipulate a human. So, so you're out there cleaning up the world, right? Stopping these guys, um, like superhero style. (laughs) We're trying. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about some of the things that you've caught. Yeah. So, uh, let's see, what would be a good one? We had one over the summer that was, uh, it was a municipality. Actually, we onboarded this customer, you know, and like a lot of municipalities, you see, uh, you see maybe a, not enough investment in IT modernization. So they're running a lot of end of life, like Windows 2000 or 2003 servers still. So we roll out um, and they were already breached, uh, but there was no real indications yet because they were sitting on these servers that we can't even run on. They're so old. Um, and then w- what we find is our most active times for response are about 6 p.m. East Coast Friday night to about 6, 7 a.m. Saturday morning, right? I think that's on purpose. I think some of the groups wait for, you know, everyone to go home and get drunk on Friday and go do their thing. And so what we what we experienced there was an absolute mass lateral spread all at once. So we see this server, which we don't have one of our agents on, and they hit the 911 server, the criminal justice information server, the kind of, you know, fire dispatch, um, all the security cameras, badge, everything. The This was going to be a Baltimore, like, ransomware event. And, uh, you know, so we stepped in, we started responding, and I think we had four people working at this one all at once because, you know, when someone gets in a network and there's no antivirus alerts, which is actually really common, we went three months. We had a 2,000% increase in our breaches right before the election that we had to respond to. There wasn't one anti-malware alert in any of them, you know, from any of the products that were installed. And so, you know, we're killing processes, we're isolating machines. And, you know, you probably had a 20 to 60 minute window before this place is mass ransomware. And so we stopped wave one, but, you know, there's so many holes in this network that they were, they had free access to come in from the internet. And, you know, we had limited control on, on that piece. Long story short, it was cool. The second time we watched them, it probably took them, we knocked them out. And I'm sure they were probably confused as to what was going on. And we had about a uh, our time frame and then wave two came. Uh, when wave two came, we watched them disabling 
two antivirus products because they thought that's what was catching it. And long story short, this went on like six times. So that was one. Uh, we had another cool one. Well, uh, I guess cool. It's, it's not cool. It's cool. For, yeah. for me, it was kind of cool. <laughs> um, so we had one where uh, where we rolled into a network. And again, they were also uh, owned by two groups. One was uh, a, uh, a nation state and one was uh, a criminal group that was getting ready to ransomware them. They got in through bad firewall hygiene, right? So we get in and we see the ransomware groups making a lot of noise, trying to get ready to, to pop this whole company. And they're probably 4,000 employees or so. So we knocked them out and then we found a really quietly persisted one. And that turned out to be a, a pretty prominent nation state. Uh, so we, you know, we kind of kicked them out and got their tool set and whatnot and reversed it. And so another one that, uh, one last third one, I think you might find kind of neat is, uh, you know, nation states, when they go after, they have a lot of agenda. It might be to destroy something, you know, just to, you know, make a mess of a network. Or when we hear about intellectual property theft, this particular, a lot of times nation states will, let's say you were targeting would be a good example, a, in this case, a space program, right? You might not target the main kind of big contractor, the big notable name. There's probably seven downstream supply chain companies that make a little part here, a little part there. So, and, and this is like small business at this point, right? So we had one customer, small business, they made a really specialty part that, that flew you know, that, that went to space and another country wanted it. We watched them come in. There was a, a true kind of next gen AV EDR running, no alerts there. We watched them. They do the normal stuff. They exploit the firewall. They tried to figure out who the domain admins are, but then they immediately went and tried to hit a CNC machine. And What's that? Oh, oh the, the, the cutting machines. Yeah. Cutting yeah. machine, like a water cutting machine. Why? That's a brilliant place to go get diagram production part so you know if you get that diagram you can take that build of aluminum or whatever it is in your own CAD machine load it and cut it perfect so we stopped them before we got it but they were totally after that raw file that would allow them to get a perfectly you know so that's how you don't have to do any R&D at that point it's already a production ready part that's not something the United States does but that's absolutely something other countries do so we were glad to stop them before they got anything. But that is, that's something where a lot of these kind of smaller mom and pops that make something special don't realize they're really on the radar for some, you know, pretty powerful groups. I want you to, we're talking a lot about like the attack and, and this side of things. Yeah. I want you to walk me through the offensive team. Like, what is it like? Tell me a story. Like, what is it like? You're, I'm, you mentioned these waves. Am I sitting there with a team of five people around me and, and I'm commanding them and we're, we're going after the CNC part. Like, how is that playing out at the nation state hmm. or at the attack facility? Oh, Hmm. Well, I, I could probably give you more of the defensive one. I probably won't go into too much on the uh, kind of what <laughs> no, the, no blueprint. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, the reality is like everything in life, things that look really spooky from the outside are a lot simpler and it might be one or two people doing something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, you know, I'll say on the defensive side, uh, most of the time it's pretty low drama. It's like, oh, we see this piece of tradecraft, see this going on, it gets escalated by tier one, and it's about a 30-second decision to click a couple buttons and stop it and notify and ring the customer's phone off the hook and maybe give them a couple other things we want them to do. Uh, in the case of when we roll into larger customers that are really owned, it can turn into an all-hands-on-deck with multiple people working on uh, kicking the bad guys out of servers on one side and workstations on the other. And you kind of, and that one is really more kind of, kind of intense and has a lot of folks, but that's a kind of rare event. You know, most of the times uh, when we roll out, we, the company's not owned, but we see a lot of holes, what we call IT hygiene problems, kind of like underlying conditions, if it was the human. And those are cases where we're able to kind of give them a couple pointers to tighten their tighten their game up really fast. And that really reduces the attack surface. So it makes response a lot, a lot more calm. But you know, 
you look at, I can only surmise that solar winds breach and everything that went on was a pretty large team of folks. And when and I apologize for my child you in got, the back, you have a banshee too. I've got two. Banshees. I have a, yeah. who's upstairs. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a time when a lot of resources could be thrown towards making, you know, a technical capability and working with humans. You know, there's a lot that goes into, you know, big, big operations. And so, and that I think that's one of again one of the reasons companies come to us is, you know, Main Street America companies or even a medium enterprise with four eight thousand folks, they're not, they're not equipped. They don't have the people that know this game, and they don't want to spend money on a twenty four seven operation themselves. Yet they might have you know a very well resourced large team of people who wake up every day and their job is to break into them, and make a mess or you know hire people to go work for them. So it's it's, uh, you know, I think that's where this game's moving, where you're going to see more uh, specialization and outsourcing. Do you have any favorite movies that, I guess, dramatize the offensive in a pretty interesting way or a way that's like, that you oh, enjoy? Man. No, I can't no. watch them. You can't I mean, watch them? Let me ask you, have you ever seen <laughs> a movie where comes on the screen. Sorry, can I say that on here? Where stuff comes on the screen yeah. and it doesn't make no and it makes noise like every single time. I mean, it drives me nuts. Like the computer's printing stuff out really slowly. Like that's old movies. I I can I can never watch these spy movies. You know what movie I thought was actually pretty good is Red Sparrow, more on the kind of human side. I thought that was a pretty good movie and you know, kind of a nice nod to a certain human tradecraft, not on the the tech side. Some of the movies, what was that TV show? Was it Mr. Robot? I don't remember. Yeah, the I know series. what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mr. They Robot. Used a, they used some at least real commands in there. It wasn't just garbage stuff on the screen. I remember, I think there was a, uh, one of the Matrix movies used Nmap in there. And, you know, all the, the computer guys went crazy. They're all excited. They actually used a real product or tool. <laughs> so. I know nothing's worse than when they're using stock footage or nonsense on the screen. Uh-huh. Cause for me, it, without even trying, my brain can just see the image quickly and process exactly what's happening. Cause I've stared at that screen for decade plus. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I think one of the first times I noticed it was the Facebook movie. He was running curl commands, but it was better right. than just nothing. Just like whatever they would put in before or, or yeah, the best is, yeah, yeah. When it's like code from another, application that you see running and you can read it but the director or the editors had no idea they're like that looks like code let's put it in. it's a cat picture image algorithm <laughs> oh yeah totally totally it's uh i think they're trying harder now to put at least a little bit of you know some realism into it but i i haven't i can't say i've seen a great one that to be honest it'd probably be a really boring movie <laughs> if you did it all for real because the reality is you fail about 85, 90% of the time, I think, when you're trying to do this stuff. You know, there's so much failure, and that's, oh, finally, you found one little hole, and you keep worming your way through. But, yeah, no, I'm not sure I've seen a great movie, but I did think Red Sparrow was pretty well done. You've used the word, like, tradecraft a couple times. Can you yeah. give me a better definition of that? Yeah, I think the some people would call that behavior it's really your tools and tactics and techniques and procedures that that you use to let's say you know figure out where you are in environment so like, here's an example let's say i sent i sent you or anyone uh, a spear phishing email you clicked on it and you know now i have something running on your computer i have to figure are you at home you know what type of firewall do you have what's your default gateway is this like a, a soho home thing is this a cisco device you know, or did I land in a really large enterprise or network? And how many hops am I to, let's say, Google? You know, what's filtering some of my maybe like ICMP or ping type traffic, you know, going out? Because all this is, you know, little techniques you use to try and orient yourself, you know, kind of in the, in the, you know, virtual environment. Um, and that's why I said, like, you know, if, I think when you break, and this is not a hard and fast thing, I'm sure people take exception with this, but, I think when you take the best guys for making malware backdoors are really awesome software engineers. They find exploits or good reversers or all that. I think the best people to use the tools the software engineers make are guys with a strong IT background. 
because they understand networking segmentation, you know, how authentication, different authentication systems are working. I think that's like the dynamic duo, those, those two groups moving together. Now, some people can do it all, but I really, really think what we tend to hire more, um, in our threat operations center, more folks with a strong IT background, because so much of the, you know, when I use the term tradecraft, other people use the term behavior. It's the same thing. You know, so much of that is actually like mounting like C dollar sign and admin share. IT guy knows what that is in two seconds or a net command to interrogate a domain controller. IT guys know that just instinctively off the bat if they were domain guys. So I think there are some you know, backgrounds that lend yourself to kind of one skill set or, or the other. Yeah, I'm definitely on the software side. It was when yeah. I realized the software is only as good as the people who wrote it. And then, so here are the holes that I wouldn't, or that I didn't think about earlier in my career <laughs> that I yeah. found out about later in my career, or I found out after watching more experienced engineers operate. And I'm not, I'm not super strong on the networking side, but right. to your duo pair, Back in, so I'm actually 33 today. So back when I was around- Happy birthday. Thank you. Like 10, 10 to 13, the one of the first Xbox online things came out, right? So this is 20 plus years ago, which sounds right. ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so one of the people found out that if you used a, a firewall to- because um, they would load the game off of someone's disc. Like 10 people join the room and they're going to pick one Xbox console to load the game off of way, yep. way back in the day. And so they found out that if if you had a, um, a firewall system running and you identified the other IP addresses trying to connect because it's testing all the ones to figure out which one to go to, mm -hmm. and you mark them as like medium threat, it would confuse it and it would make you host. You could, you could essentially game this system i'm trying to remember 20 oh, years ago you could game cool. yeah you could game this you would install this software on your computer and it was just a standard over-the-counter defense software mm -hmm. and you could select these ips as they were coming over your network and treat them a certain way with a certain rule set and it would then block them it was really complicated. So I wrote a little piece of software <laughs> that just extracted that feature because it was this massive suite of tools and I just right. looked up how it was working. I didn't really need to know about the network or how it worked on a really detailed level. I just figured out how this one specific feature worked and mimicked it into its own container so that I could give it to my friends and things like that. Uh, so they wouldn't have to download a whole suite and crack the suite because you know that's what you do when you're 10. <laughs> you don't have money to pay for it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, and then we just basically extracted this hack out. And then of course Xbox saw what was happening because you would modify the disk. Uh, you would modify the files on the disk so that you could have whatever weapon you wanted. You could have a rapid oh, fire thing incredible. that shot rockets. And, it, and you would be the only one that like had it. You could make everybody spawn in one location. Basically, <laughs> it was fun and boring. It was like something you do over the summer as a kid, right? Yeah, that's but, awesome. Yeah, and so it was a network guy found the exploit and knew how it worked, shared it with me. I was a software guy. I helped extract that out. And ultimately, it was for the sake of winning the video game. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really think there's something to that kind of merging of skill sets, you know, and then the last person you'd want to add to the team is a guy that's a great human manipulator that can help design content to lure people and socially engineer them. When you bring those skill sets together, there's a lot you can do. And, you know, it's one of the things like in our product, actually, we're one of the only companies that does live network mapping. We build whole dynamic maps of the network because I always felt like, Man, the SOC guys, you know, and I've been on both sides of this, it's, they're always focused on kind of malware, command control, bad DNS. But, you know, the network and IT guys really know what should be happening where, which parts the segment for the IT and privileged users. You know, where's the C-suite? Where's your server line segment? So we do all that together because we're monitoring thousands of networks and we need to be able to make sense of it really fast. Like what subnet did they land in? Where are they trying to spread to? And it allows our response to be a lot more efficient. But yeah. You're spot on. I, you know, to me, programming seems so incredibly hard. I think, I think you guys are the bigger brained ones. <laughs> so. I disagree. I think we all, I think we all see it like that. Wherever we have a decade of plus of experience, we see it as very simplistic. And then yeah. something else that we can barely scratch the surface of. We're like, those people are so brilliant, and I'm just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I was, I was talking with uh, Vino 
he's uh, over at Presidio and they do this like digital transformation. So they're a digital transformation company. They move companies to the cloud, um, variety of ways, really, really great company. But I was looking for questions for the show. And one of the ones that came up was, what's the security that you need to think about when you're moving in that digital transformation process? Do you come across that? Do companies come to you and say, hey, we're going to be moving our environments. We want you to like wrap your security around us and watch us in this move. Not as much during the move, I would say. You know, most times when people are coming to us, it's because they know they they don't have any eyes on their their infrastructure and they need the so- our software and our, our folks to do it. You know, there is a lot to be said though during that transformation time because that's that's a time where, as you know, it a lot of people have to get it working first and secure it kind of like as fast as they can after because it's hard, it's a pain in the butt getting everything up and running and working. So you know, it is a good use case. You know, we find a lot of folks and in, in, in we we counsel them on this. We're monitoring literally every privileged transaction going between devices, right? And that can be really helpful because so many times you'll find there's a dozen service accounts that aren't associated with one user and they're littering creds and tokens everywhere. And that's exactly what the bad guys go after. And when you're you're kind of making that transition, there's a lot of that activity going on. So, you know, the places where you can maybe steal credentials, you know, increases a bit when you're doing that kind of move. I'll tell you the other areas we've seen that are terrifyingly, you know, kind of loud and sloppy are DevOps environments, mm-hmm. you know, where you're doing all your automation and orchestration. I guess on one hand for the bad guys, it's like confusing to figure out what the hell is going on. But on the other hand, there's a ton of observables. So the amount of passwords we see in clear text from scripts and even commercial software that's using, it's unbelievable. We had to create a whole new class of alert just for this. Because it's so, we see it so often. And the reality is, if we see it, if anyone gets on there, you know, bad guy, they're going to see it too. And it makes their life a lot easier. So they're storing them like in config files versus as environment variables? Yeah, they're in config files or they're, they're pat, you know, you can turn on command line ordering in all the modern windows. And so they're, you'll see in the command line arguments, they're, they're, the, the clear text password is sitting there with like a dash P and then the password. All the time. Absolutely <laughs> you just all look the in time. the history of your commands and pull yeah, the password. All the time. And you'd be shocked how many companies that make legitimate software are doing these little tricks here and there remotely, you know, get data or you know, operating system information or patch levels off another computer. It's it's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking. You know, so that's why it's kind of better if you're going to design like some agent thing to make sure it runs the system and it gets its commands, you know, securely as opposed to it authenticating out to another machine to interrogate it and bring its data back. We see that all the time, unfortunately. What do you recommend to CTOs like as far as a two or three step checklist for, and I'll give you some context. Let's say they're between maybe a hundred and 500 people, right? Yeah. So like that range. So you got a CTO, maybe they've gotten some growth. They know how to manage people. They're growing. They, they know they should maybe get a CISO or something. Do they have like a two or three part checklist for what they should be doing? For tightening up their game? I think so. Yeah. I think first off, it starts with external vulnerability scanning, right? You're outside your interface to the internet. That's low hanging fruit. So many people don't upgrade network devices or firewalls regularly enough. And there's some really bad, a SonicWall one just came out. There were some really bad ones on the uh, Pulse Secure VPNs in 2019 that got exploited like crazy. We have a, we found a list on the dark web of 50,000 <laughs> companies, you know, run it, that the hackers had of vulnerable firewalls. Scan that, make sure you don't have RDP open the internet, make sure your firewall's up to the latest patch level. Because what happens if you mess that part up, there's a gazillion bots scanning looking for this, and then a bad guy will take over and connect right in. Most people integrate their VPN with Windows Active Directory. So some of these things allow you to get clear text creds for anyone connected, which means when COVID, everyone... A lot of people moved to work from home, including the admins. That means they're walking in as domain admin. That's that's when, you know, we've stopped a ton of these, but they're also high stress because the the 
time to, you know, it going bad is really short. So that's one, your, 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 your kind of boundary. The second thing I need, I think they need to really focus on is an audit of all privileged accounts and make sure that your admins have a non-privileged day-to-day account and they only use a privilege, they put in their privileged separate account only when they need to do something privileged. So really bring that down. We find way too many companies have over permissioning of, of privileges and they have bad group policies that are giving users local admin on all the computers. So it's as good as domain admin really at that point. Uh, and then the last one is, is the basic one, which is for all your kind of internet facing web applications, get MFA on that and get MFA on your, on your VPN. You do those three things, your attack surface comes down massively. There's probably one fourth thing at that size where a lot of folks at that size use a, an MSP, some sort of outsourced IT, either partially to augment or fully. Make sure they have multi-factor authentication on their remote monitoring and management tool. Because what happens is the hackers are going after MSPs like crazy. Because if they can hit them in that tool, they can encrypt 40, 50, 100 companies all at once. I mean, you heard about the 22 uh, towns in Texas a couple of years ago that got ransomware all at once. That's how it happens. So that's that other kind of secret vector that can can really burn you. And it's all it requires is one question and, hey, vendor, just make sure you're doing this. And it really, really brings down, you know, kind of your attack surface. Nice. Thank you for that. Yeah. We'll make a little checklist yeah. of that and put it into yeah. an email and send it out, get get the awareness out there for people. One thing I definitely wanted to touch on um, was you race cars and self-driving cars and you're into security. What What is going on in the self-driving security world? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I know the answer to that. Um, first off, like, I like racing cars. Um, I'm not amazing at it, but it's so much fun and you get to go real fast and racing wheel to wheel is really fun. So the whole kind of automated car thing doesn't really excite me. That being said, if from a security standpoint in cars, one of the things that makes me like a little bit nervous, so there's the sensors, right? I think weather is probably going to cause a lot of those self-driving car LIDAR systems and everything more issues, but I'm, I'm not an engineer on that side. It's the firmware updates that come over the air, you know, because like like Tesla, for example, they can update their cars and, you know, unlock performance or, you know, optimize whatever. And the question I always have in my mind is, okay, how is that code written? How is it secure? How is it authenticated? Uh, and how is it deployed? And over what networks? And how could you get to that as a bad guy? Like, I think it's car, and this is probably going to touch all cars, whether they're you know internal combustion or not. Is you start being able to remotely upgrade your car, no different than you know a firmware update in a computer. I mean, you know, firmware attacks are brutal because you can just break things totally. You know, there's a lot of network devices, router switches out there that don't even cryptographically authenticate their firmware, which opens the door for you know just turning them into. Uh, a total brick. So I think that would be one area that is, you know, I, I would assume the car companies are putting a, a ton of focus into, but that that's what would make me nervous. You know, someone taking over that type of infrastructure just because of how damaging it could be. Yeah, you could broadcast. I'm uh, curious about their internal security. I always like to go to the gun to the head analogy, yeah, yeah. right? Because that's my favorite one. Because it's like, okay, all your security in the world and someone walks off, if you put the gun to the right person's side, you're going to get what you want. Yeah. And I'm like, if they can, if there's, there's got to be one central point where they broadcast out updates over the air to all of these vehicles, and like, how, how is this going to happen? Not just Tesla. Let's talk about like all, any place you're yeah. going to have that congestion of you have a bunch of multi-thousand-pound vehicles that are autonomously driving that you can take control over. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't know enough about that technology. I think to. Come on, John. I expected you to be an it. expert. Uh, I know. Uh, the. It always seems to me like a, you know, a, an autonomous lane would be really nice where, you know, the car, maybe the, the lane has some sort of, you know, RF, something to tell the car to stay in the lane to reduce all the calculations it has to make, you know, as far as avoiding other traffic. It seems to me, you know, and I'm sure they'll get there at some point, but the whole idea of this complex world and all these known unknowns 
that has to be thrown at this algorithm, like they're going to mess up, I would think, you know, so I always thought an autonomous lane would be kind of, kind of clever, keep those vehicles there. And there's, I think it'll be a lot simpler on the types of decisions they have to make. You can put trucks in that lane and heck, they'll probably manage their spacing a lot better than humans would. Um, but, you know, I don't know, it'd be so cool if you had someone from that world on on your podcast, just to kind of go into that technology, I would definitely listen to that. It's fascinating to me. All right, Adam, make a note. Adam's, Adam and Jake are listening. We have to go get a autonomous drive, like self-driving car security expert, and then we'll yeah. send you a link and see so we can geek out about it. What type of cars do you race? So I race uh, a form of Miata, like you know, everyone seems to to race. It's the most popular. It's called uh, Sherm Spec Miata SSM. So, you know, main homes in, in Maryland and um, I'm out in Colorado for half the year because my kids are ski racers. So they're kind of like the original Miata uh, that's all caged and kind of spec. So we all race with the same horsepower and suspension and tires. And then, you know, it's on a road course and there's anywhere from 35 to 50 cars at the event. Um, Good community. It's a blast. It's great. And there's some tech guys, the, the Zero Fox guys race, um, you know, uh, back there and they're good. And it's it's a ton of fun. There's a lot of crashes, though. That's the only thing that kind of stinks because you, know, you have to foot the bill for your car. So I got I got wrecked twice uh, uh, over Labor Day and, and another day. So my car's getting fixed right now. Was that uh, was a previous wreck like you were discussing? way at the beginning that the, you had some in injury that changed the course of you know, oh. your progression. Was that car related? No, that was me being an idiot. I was, uh. Uh, I, uh, I was skiing down a dirt bike trail in Maryland cause I have a bad back from sports. And, uh, instead of sledding with my kids years and years, this was 2014. I didn't buckle my boots really. I had like one buckle and snow was heavy i went to stop and my ski stuck and i blew up both my knees like acl and mcl lateral meniscus all that stuff so that's where i was kind of like stuck you know i was in a wheelchair and it couldn't work for a while so that was kind of the you know in hindsight i'm not sure i would have ever left the intelligence community if that didn't happen and start the commercial version of black point so yeah you know maybe life that happens was a like that. blessing in disguise i don't know I 100% I believe that. So when I was around 12, younger, I got hit by a car. I was in a wheelchair for a year, broke oh my, gosh. my right leg in a bunch of places and really tore up my left leg. And my my sister-in-law asked me to talk to her two boys who are 7 to 10 right. about playing safely in the street and to tell them my story. And she's like, can you go talk to them, tell them how bad it was and everything like that? I started to think about what I would say to them. And the problem is I go around and do like national speaking tours. And I use that as like, I took all the energy from that horrible event and spun it into power. And it's like the, one of the greatest events in my entire life. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I can't go over there tell them how bad it was and how it ruined my life. Cause it made me who I am today. And I absolutely love that part of my history. It taught me so much. It made, yeah. There, <laughs> so, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there's a lot of good things that can come out of adversity. A lot of good things. It's a great hardening process too, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, Especially even, even as... for COVID, I mean, it's terrible, but I mean, just terrible and tragic, you know, just for my own business, we were so stuck in this brick and mortar hiring everyone at our office mindset. And then we went so virtual after we have employees and, Canada, Latin America, Central America, you know, Middle East, Europe, all over the place. We're able to find, and the commute has cut down. Like, so I think everyone's kind of working a bit more. Like our productivity went up and it's worked great. And I don't think I would have thought that way until I was forced to think that way. So I'm total agreement with you now. I, I wish I didn't blow up my knees, but the flip side is it got put back together pretty well. And you know, just dumped almost two feet here in Colorado. So <laughs> I snuck out with my kid this morning for an hour. Nice. You know, so it was good. So that sort of the difficulty of that moment helped prepare you for the difficulty that is. I'm a founder. A lot of people yep. say, oh, you tech guy, podcast. I was like, well, I'm an entrepreneur and this is my current project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm curious, you know, 
that help those difficult moments help they harden you and help prepare you what are you learning now uh as a leader i will say man i've made a ton of mistakes with this company you know but now we're kind of kicking butt and it's going awesome i would say the, the biggest thing i didn't understand in starting a business we knew how to make tech we knew how to catch hackers the art of the go-to-market plan, picking your customer, how you, you know, we made a product at the time, you know, was so far ahead of its time and everyone's stuck in the seam mentality and gobbling up terabytes of logs. And they still are, frankly, trying to make sense of it. We built this thing that was like a SOAR platform out of the box, you know, security orchestration, automation and response. And the, and the thing is, you know, when you go up market and sell a large enterprise, what I find is, they look at what Gartner recommends and they look at what their customers are using. And a lot of them don't necessarily understand like why they're buying. Like I tell everyone, if you want to be good at security, details matter. They really matter and you better roll around those details and understand them. And so, you know, for me, picking when we picked MDR, managed detection response, which became kind of the hot new security area. Uh, when we settled on that, when we were kind of settled on a channel-based go-to-market, we realized sales is really about building a machine. You know, you have to have, you got to have a value proposition that resonates. It's got to fit in a product category they understand. You have to have some folks who are focused on bringing new channel partners on. And then one of the things we did recently is we reorged our sales team so that every time we bring on a new partner, they immediately get a customer success rep that trains them how to sell, gives them all their sales and gives them sales tools. It's like a white glove onboarding because we want to make our channel partners better because it helps us. And it was figuring out that entire machine. I mean, we floundered a few years ago just trying to like understand that. It was never a tech issue. It's like the best product only wins 50% of the time. Like I didn't know that. I didn't know how much more and I didn't appreciate it. And boy, do I now. And I think we got it figured. And how much... We can automate and instrument every piece of our sales process so that we know, you know, where our best leads come from, why are people buying when they go to competition, who it is. It's all automated now and Power BI dashboards, and we have it all kind of dialed. That stuff was really, I think, what I slept on big time in the early days. So I would do it totally opposite. I would start on go to market and realize we can engineer our way into the right product if I start a company over again the ratios of how many unique contacts need to be made versus response rates and all building a sales org is something I literally, so I was so great with technology. I could build you yep. anything, run teams of teams, but it wasn't until the past, you know, 36 months that I learned how to build a sales team and the difficult you were, you literally described it perfectly. You're That's building it. a machine. People will ask me, they'll say, I was working so many hours, right? Doing this and completely ignoring my family until this past October, I started really investing and spending time in them because we figured out sales, like figuring right. that out relieves all the pressure. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and going through that process, I, I said, you know, if I were going into the garage and I were building a physical printer that could print money, people would be like, let's do it. I'll come over and help. And they could, you know, every night, you know, but that's what I was doing. It just, I was building a money printing machine. It just wasn't a physical machine that was illegally yeah. printing money. It was a business. And that's what I just kept doing layer after layer after layer. And it just took a long, it just takes a long time to figure it out. It does. It does. And I, you know, the, the power of the data and getting quality data going into kind of your sales process. And that's another, we've spent so much time making sure in that whole BANT phase, we're figuring out, you know, how many endpoints? What's the total addressable market? You know, what other products are you using? And then that all goes in where we can say, well, we're going to do this integration next because we know most of our market is is using this piece of software, right? It makes sense. And then and then everything from BDRs, you know, the the dialing and conversion rates. Like, I know exactly how many contacts now and how many mm -hmm. calls a BDR can do in a day and what that's going to convert into. And then it's all kind of taking that funnel of all your lead sources and your scoring of your leads that will convert into a real sales lead in the sales pipeline. Boy, I wish I knew that when I started this. I would have yep. saved a lot of time, money and heartache and frustration. But, but now you have that skill forever and it translates. Yep. So if you want to do another business, if you want to do another thing, like as life goes on, you know, it's, it's like, I, 
I'm monkey see monkey do learner. Like if I can see something happen correctly once I can mimic it and I'm fine. And now that I've seen sales operate and have had to build that, I mean, I'm just so, I'm so grateful. It's, it's a weird transition because now what, now the thing I'm learning and tell me if this resonates with you, yeah. I'm learning patience. Cause I watch my cash flow. I know it takes me three months to ramp a sales person. I bring one on, I watch them ramp a higher two more. I watch them ramp a higher another. One. And so it's just the patience of like going through that cycle and watching the, the revenue grow. Yeah. It's, it's kind of nice too, to when you instrument it, right. You can see what's working and what's not right. You know, are we missing something in the messaging up, up front that's, you know, are we not getting enough kind of what we call NCA or new customer acquisition type leads coming in? It's it's a whole new world. I'm pretty fascinated with it now that I understand it's kind of like engineered, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like yeah. a lot, it got a lot easier to conceptualize for me. So it's, uh, yeah, boy, I feel, I, if I, that would be all my advice to everyone starting a company is do, that's boring and, you know, mentally challenging and you know you don't want to think through it. it's way more fun to think about your creative strategy you know for marketing or you know building the widget but the other th if you don't have this other thing dialed you know your odds of success are low thank you so much for listening and if you found this episode useful please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it and if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.